Welcome to the Cucumber Podcast. I'm Matt Wynn, and I'm joined by fellow cucumbers Sal Freudenberg and Steve Tuck. And this week, we're speaking to two of my all-time heroes, Janet Gregory and Lisa Crispin. Um, and we've invited you onto the podcast. We've just been discussing this. We basically have no uh, no idea specifically how this has come about, other than the fact that um, Lisa's actually a big fan of the podcast, and we're a big fan of hers. And I don't know how it's taken us this long to invite you onto the podcast. And then Lisa um, told us that we had to invite Janet as well. So that's great, because we get two heroes for the price of one. So welcome, both of you. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so exciting. Thank you for having us. Um, so you may know Janet and Lisa from uh, such books as Agile Testing. Is that what it's called? It's just called Agile Testing, isn't it? The definitive book, in my opinion, on um, <laughs> how to do that stuff. Uh, what, what, how else might people know you, you two? Well, we have the book More Agile Testing as well. Double, double goodness. What else, Janet? Uh, we have a video course. We're on Twitter. We talk a lot on Twitter. We do lots of uh, conference talks, things like that around the world. And what are you both up to at the moment? I'm recuperating from agile testing days, actually. <laughs> I, I, I do a lot of um, training uh, on a, our agile testing course. I um, do some consulting, which I like to do. Uh, also working on our newest endeavor, which is called the Agile Testing Fellowship. So that's keeping me very busy. Well, I, I am up to having made an epic four-day journey across most of the United States with my donkeys, cats, and dogs, and husband, and assorted relatives, uh, moved to Vermont, and I am working as a testing advocate for a startup called Mabel, and um, it's really a cool opportunity for me because it gives me time to just reach out and do stuff for the software and testing community, which is fun, and I'm working from home in beautiful Vermont where it's snowing right now. And I'm also helping with the Agile Testing Fellowship, but I have to say Janet is the main driver there right now because she's better at it and has more time. <laughs> <laughs> we did originally, I think, ask you on Lisa and then Lisa asked Janet to talk about DevOps because DevOps is um, really hot right now, I'd say. Um and it's a great thing, I think. It's all about, you know, a lot of the stuff that we stand for as well, about kind of bringing in diverse groups and collaborating and trying to um, see the whole sort of process end-to-end -end rather than just seeing little bits of it. Um, and it's about continuous delivery, which is a great thing. Um, and so have you seen – well, maybe we should start with a definition of, of DevOps, should we? Like, does does uh, does anybody have one they can kind of rattle out that, that – helps us to explain to people what we're talking about. When I think of DevOps, uh, I think of just the de delivery team working with people from operations, right? I, uh, just to think about that whole pipeline. That's what I think about at the very basics. Uh, DevOps takes advantage of a lot of the tools that we have available now to make that... Um, uh, Simpler isn't the word I want, but easier to get that continuous delivery. Uh, but at its base is just collaboration so that it's not thrown over the wall to operations. It's the whole team approach extended. Exactly. Uh, and I, I think the original idea was operations people should learn to write code and uh, coding people should learn to configure 
operations and stuff in the cloud. I think it's I think it's grown even more with the cloud platforms. But um, it, it's kind of funny to me because when people started saying DevOps, I was like, well, I've been on software teams since the early 1980s, and I always worked together with operations, and I've always done operation stuff myself. So why is this a new concept? But whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think it really depends where you're working, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I remember going from a, a large uh, multinational broadcaster to a teeny little startup and having this experience of like um, two weeks apart, I'd had a problem in production where like literally um, data was getting corrupted minute by minute. And um, I had to get this SQL script, which was what, like one liner that was going to fix it. It took me a day to get it deployed to production. And I had to go through two meetings with managers, neither of whom had any idea how to, <laughs> none of whom had any idea how to read the SQL script. And then I had to email it to a guy who copied and pasted it, who also didn't have any idea what it did, copied and pasted it into a window and pressed OK, because he was the only person with enough permission to, to run it. Contrasted that with... Um, like two weeks later, I was at a diddly, diddly little startup and um, there was a problem in production. And there I was like 10 minutes later, shelled into the production machine, fixing it all by myself. And it's sort of all about like the culture of the organization, isn't it? And how kind of set up they are for trusting people enough, I guess. Yeah. And I think that's it is the structure of the organization, right? If you are on a, a team where everybody is working together, it's one thing, but so many times... Um, and it doesn't even have to be a big organization, right? I was in one where the, the support team was downstairs <clears throat> and had a totally separate manager who felt very protective of her area. And we really couldn't hardly talk to each other, the del delivery team and the support group. So culture has a lot to do with it, for sure. Yeah, and it's the same cultures, I guess, that either find agile easy or struggle with agile as well where they're used to having people working in separate boxes and not talking to each other and throwing things over the walls at each other it's just i guess we we've so i think definitely in the bdd community and i guess in agile more generally we've tended to think about the throwing over the wall that happens between people with business problems or or you know and they throw requirements documents over the wall um and then and then the developers throw code over the wall don't they and then somebody has to test it and, and then after it's been tested, it gets thrown over the wall operations. Yeah, and I guess related to that, when we sort of see with, with, with sort of modern teams or teams that are really rocking this stuff that, you know, they're, maybe they're doing continuous integration, they're putting things down into really small chunks, they're getting things out there really, really quickly. I would imagine that there's a whole bunch of new um, challenges that come along with that with in, as kind of continual testing, if you like. What difficulties do you see with teams uh, trying to make that happen, trying to make it possible to be testing in this kind of continual integration, continual employment kind of world we live in now or some of us do? Well, it really changes. And I, if you're trying to do continuous delivery, so the team I was on in my last job a couple of years ago, the man, the director said, okay, let's start doing, let's start deploying twice a week. Cause we have all this cloud platform stuff going and these automated deploys and it's awesome. Let's just go twice a week. And, uh, at the time we had thousands and thousands of automated tests, but still had a long manual regression checklist that we did every release, mm -hmm. which we were usually doing once a week or once every two weeks. 
And so the other tester and I kind of looked at each other. It's like, okay, so now we're doing this twice a week. So we started <laughs> doing this and it's like, okay, it's taking all our time because when you go through any kind of a checklist like that, those things may not be broken, but you'll probably notice other things you want to investigate. And it's just this, this sinkhole of time. And so we were having a whole team meeting a few weeks after we started this process and the other tester just raised his hand and said, you know, we're just not going to do the manual regression checklist anymore. And there was just a silence in the room and okay, <laughs> we just quit doing it because it, it was taking all our time and we couldn't do any other activities. And so more and more problems were actually getting into production because we weren't doing exploratory testing and we weren't collaborating with the developers as much as they were coding because we didn't have time. And it was just crazy. So, 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 there, so there was a decision made that actually the benefit of the benefit of doing the, the the those manual regression tests was less than the benefit that would come from just collaborating with the developers and and doing the exploratory stuff. Exactly, and it, and it and it did. It worked. It's like, oh, okay. A hard okay. decision to make sometimes, though, because you get that feeling of a safety net, right? I but I, I love the fact that increasing just increasing the number of deployments a week um highlighted this bottleneck and which gave you the opportunity to try something radical almost in the team and it actually worked even better it's um it's such a great story like put pressure on the bottleneck and see what happens how do you fix it that's true i hadn't thought of it that way but you know it's definitely increasing the pain more and more and we couldn't we tried to shove the pain off to other people we tried to get the product owners to do it we tried to get developers to do it and it kept coming back to us. And finally, so we just like, okay, that's it. We're not doing it. Somebody else can do it if they want to, but we're not. <laughs> Which nice. you can't get away with in all organizations, probably. <laughs> so I think this also leads me to think about when we talk about DevOps, um, so many times I hear uh, companies and teams saying it's all about the tools, trying to get that automated pipeline in place, right? And part of it is that but it comes back down to solving the people problems first. Solving those, how do we get that out of the way? How do we, you know, um, try to, to, how do we try to get um, us talking together so that we can eliminate those problems? So it's not always just the, the tool pipeline that we have to think about. And, and what have you seen um, work in terms of helping teams go through that cultural shift then? Yeah, for, I've been lucky to be on a team that already was pretty good at, you know, the testers, we were part of the team and that collaboration was already there. I think you, we were already an agile team and kind of working from that place. So I think for agile teams, it's not such a big, huge cultural shift. But I think for teams that are still pretty siloed and pretty phased and gated. It's all part of the transition. They're basically transitioned to agile. I mean, DevOps, DevOps is an outgrowth of agile. But I think there are, one thing I've learned from Janet is make your problems visible. And I think one of the things that can really help is to just visualize, you know, we all kind of wave our hands and talk about our pipeline and look, and like Janet says, look at our tools, look at the dashboards in the tools. They don't always give a clear picture. And one thing I learned from, um, Abby Bankser and Ashley Hunsberger was, you know, sit around a table or a wall and everybody gets sticky notes and start actually drawing the stages of the pipeline or the steps in the pipeline and talk about them. And it's like, okay, what, what questions does this test suite 
test suite answering and who needs to know that information and is there some way we can get that feedback sooner and just visualizing it and laying it out there so people can talk about it. I think that's really a, one powerful way to do it because we do get too dependent on the tools and it's like, well, just look at the concourse thing. You can see what the pipeline's doing. It's like, really, I can't. <laughs> it also helps to give more confidence that everybody understands what's going on, right? Because if you don't know what this suite of tests is testing, what kind of confidence do you have? It, it doesn't make sense. Um, I know that um, quite often I go into, it seems lately I've been going into a lot of large organizations that are transitioning and I'll go work with one team and they'll say, yep, we want to go continuous delivery. And I, I sit there and I look at that and I, I kind of go, okay, but this other team I was talking to yesterday is so far away from continuous delivery that um, it, it, it doesn't make sense. So I think organizations really struggle because they'll have one team that probably could go continuous delivery, whereas the team right next door is so far away that they can't even imagine what it might look like. They have to get rid of those silos in so many ways, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's like there's this sort of symbiotic relationship between the tools that show you the tools that show you the, the data about what's going on and then the, the kind of people side as well. And, and they both, you know, in the right conditions, they feed and nurture and support each other, but in the wrong conditions that actually, if you put too much weight on one side or too much weight on the other side, then it it's is. not really going to work. It's, it's about, you know, getting the balance of, of both of those things. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and one of the things, you know, like Janet said, if you're transitioning, it's really hard to, difficult and it's like and and of course there's tons of fear on the tester side of oh my god I can't even keep up with the testing now and you want mm -hmm. me to do this more often and I think one of the things that the visualization type of exercises or conversations help with is we still have to do a lot of these types of testing that aren't that aren't automated right now maybe we'll get to automate them maybe they can't be automated but just to give an example of exploratory testing you're probably you know, depending on your domain, you're probably going to have some manual exploratory testing. If you're doing continuous delivery, how does that fit in? So maybe we need different approaches of, okay, well, that now it's part of the pipeline, you know, because that was a surprise to me. It's like not everything in the pipeline is automated. So with these manual tests are part of the pipeline, but maybe we don't bottleneck the pipeline with it. We, we just do it at the same time as we're continuously delivering to production. And if we find a problem, then hopefully we have fast recovery and we get it fixed out to production really quickly. But it's it's still part of the pipeline, but it's not it's not a dependency maybe. It's yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, so so exploratory testing is still, um, still really important as a practice, but it's maybe something that you do in parallel with a continuous delivery pipeline. Or maybe it's even enabled by it to some extent because you get more kind of faster feedback. You get you can update code faster when you've explored it and found there are holes in it, and then you can iterate. I don't know what what what, what are your thoughts. There, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one of the things that teams need to talk about is the risk as well, right? Because some. Um, <clears throat> Some areas uh, might have less risk, so you could put the exploratory testing to when it is in production or, you know, um, turned off um, and have a feature toggle or something. But other 
companies or other products might have a much higher risk. So you want to move exploratory testing to uh, maybe when the developers are still working on it before they even check in their code, right? So I think you have to have those conversations about risk to determine that. As- I suppose I suppose if you've got these these build pipelines, they're always building potential releasable builds. Is that enables testers to be able to do, or someone doing exploratory testing to be able to grab those builds and just do it at any time once that build has happened as well. So um, let's just play devil devil's advocate then for a minute, right? Let's think about. So we've got this automated pipeline. There are all these automated tests. Um, why do we need anybody with a tester's role anymore? Like, apart from the exploratory testing, what else do testers do, if anything? How do they get involved in the in the overall flow of things? Well, someone's got to specify the automated tests. <laughs> I would hope that testers or somebody with a testing skill set and a testing perspective can collab- can collaborate with those. We, we hope we're doing behavior-driven development, right? Um, so all that shared understanding still has to happen. And, and, and there are lots of other, I mean, even if you automated all your regression tests that were functional, or maybe you can automate a lot of your security tests. We have that DevSecOps. Um, but a lot of, I mean, I hear that, like, I've heard that automated testing of accessibility only finds, like, 20% of the problems if somebody doing exploratory, manual exploratory testing on accessibility. I, I don't, I mean, I've just heard that. I can't prove that. But I think there are just... Like Jana says, depending on your domain, that there's lots of manual testing you have to do. But I mean, I've worked on a team where the developers did all the test automation without input from anyone else. And we had a lot of regression failures in production. I wonder why. It, I think it comes back to that, the very beginning, having those discussions um, before you ever write a line of code. <clears throat> do we have a shared understanding? Do we know what we're going to automate? Um, what makes sense to automate um, at the unit level versus maybe at a, a higher level, whether it's through the service layer or you know even through the user interface? So there's a lot of different types of discussions to have before we ever write a line of code. I was just thinking, I mean, I'm just thinking about behavior-driven development and, and, and all that collaboration of deciding how the products should behave or how the features should behave. Is there any kind of, I mean, what would you call a collaborative approach to to continuous delivery in DevOps? It's like, can we have a something driven DevOps or something driven continuous delivery? Yeah, be dev info <laughs> setups. <laughs> <laughs> but I just feel like, you know, if you want collaboration, and like Jamie says, it has to start with these conversations from the get-go. So yeah, how do you get that, how do you grow that process? And there's just so many more tests that can be done that I don't think people talk about. Like security is one because it's a big thing these days. But there's there's a whole lot of testing types that are applicable for different kinds of, of products, right? Um, and I think that without having those discussions, they're missing it. And I don't think you can automate everything. Never have, and I likely never will think that and i uh, um i think i remember being in uh, one of your workshops janet at a conference and being because i've never been a career tester <laughs> although i've done a lot of testing for sure but i um 
I was really astonished at how many of those skills that I'd sort of learned as a, as a systems analyst and business analyst shone through really, really uh, brightly in, in you know, the testing world as well. So a lot of those investigative skills were so core to testing as, a, as an endeavor, and that really surprised me. Yeah, you know, I, years ago I had a conversation with um, Ellen Godestiner and Mary Gorman, authors of Discover to Deliver, and they were writing from a kind of a BA perspective. And we started talking about the skills that we needed. Uh, and so they would say, well, we use this tool. And I go, well, we use that tool. Example, um, uh, uh, state diagrams, right? And I said, and what we determined was that BAs use just about exactly the same tools as testers do but what testers have done traditionally <clears throat> is ask those questions to the software, to the product. What we're asking testers to do now, or you know, is, is do much more of that analysis work, which is ask those questions early to help with that shared understanding. So abstracting those questions, which is what has been a traditional BA role right? But work with the team. So the, a lot of the tools are exactly the same. That mindset, it's just how we applied it. I, I was just thinking about that, so that thing about the role changing. Like, I, so I remember um, but we put on this uh, internal conference at a, at a client of ours. It was actually going to be an open space, but they wanted to get a keynote and they got a keynote speaker from another similar organization that was a few years ahead in their adoption. And this guy <laughs> set the tone abysmally for the day um, by oh, no. saying that uh, all of the BAs and all of the testers, their jobs were going to just go away, um, which uh, I was horrified by. Um, but I know that, like, re realistically, a lot of testers in, in, a, in an organization where this stuff is coming, you know, where Agile is coming and then DevOps is coming, they're afraid because um, things are going to change. And, and I mean, what, what would you say to people like that other than this? Is there anything else we can say to them? Everything has going to been, everything since the 90s, since I've been doing testing, has been going to get rid of the testers. So automation is going to get rid of them. AI is going to get rid of them. You know, all these things, DevOps. Um, and I noticed it hasn't happened. <laughs> but... Um, but I do think I do think there's something in this testing is a whole team activity. It can't only be testers who do it. We can't depend on testers as a safety net. That's not good for anybody um, because nobody's going to be careful if they have a safety net, and nobody's going to try to improve if they have a safety net. So I think uh, I've been real intrigued with Alan Page and Brent Jensen's modern testing principles that they've been putting together the last year or so, and and what they have summarized that as is saying, well, it's basically what's in Lisa and Janet's Agile testing books, plus testers teaching everybody on the team testing skills and making everybody a tester, essentially, and data science, because we have to learn from production use, which is the other side of DevOps, right? The monitoring and production. Um, so I think our job is gonna is gonna change. It has changed a lot over the years, and it could continue to change. Like like Janet says, I mean, at one point as a tester, nobody told me I need all these business analyst skills. Um, but I think it's just more interesting. I I I in my last team because 
I was having to support so many developers. I essentially was just doing, being a testing consultant. I was teaching everyone on the team how to do exploratory testing and, and uh, you know, how to make sure they had good test coverage in their automated tests and just different things, different skills that they could use so that they could do that on their own and do exploratory testing before they commit their code changes and things like that. And, um, you know, the, the software industry is growing all the time. We're not going to run out of developers, I don't think. And we need at least some testers to help them learn how to build quality and, and build a quality culture is what uh, Alan and Brent, how they phrase it. So I, you know, I'm kind of on board with that. At the same time, I think it's pretty ahead of the curve because I see tons of very traditional, even people who say they're agile, very traditional approaches to testing out there with a separate QA team who are laboring away in the salt mines doing manual regression testing. That's still a lot of that out there. And I still see a lot of people come in and make themselves a hero by saying, well, fire all the testers. We don't need them. And everybody's really excited for a while until they start having to hire them back. <laughs> so I, I wish I could remember who I first heard them, this from, but it's resonated for me for many years now, the idea that the activities that you need to do to create software aren't necessarily different in Agile so much as the order in which we do them and the size of the slices in which we do them on are different, right? So we don't batch things up. We do them on little things regularly, um, but you still need to test and you still need to understand the business domain and you still need to do analysis and you still need to do design. You just do it in a different way, but the activities aren't actually different, which really made so much sense to me. And I think it was good for all those people who are frightened, of, you know, who, you know, sometimes fear for their, like you say, fear for their jobs or whatever when they, they there's this there's this idea that we don't need to do it anymore. Right. I think the ones who should be scared for their jobs are the ones who can't change how they work, right? That they go, nope, this is the way it is, and this is the way it always will be. I can't change. I think those are the ones that um, really need to um, embrace the change. The testing industry or the testing profession kind of has a bad reputation because especially 20 years ago, people called themselves testers that were sitting in a cube manually going through written regression testing scripts over and over and over. And they called themselves tester and they never tried to learn anything new and they really didn't want to be bothered. And so that's what people thought of when they thought of QA or testing, that they thought of those people. And it's hard to overcome that. And there are still some of those people out there. And like Janet says, you know, People who don't have a growth mindset or an agile mindset and don't want to, don't have an attitude of, yeah, I'm willing to do anything the team needs me to do. I can learn it. I, I would love to learn it. Uh, people without that attitude are not going to go very far. And, I, and whether they're a tester or anything else, I think, when we talk about contemporary software development. I think it's something I've learned a lot from, from y'all on behavior-driven development um, it's all about getting the shared understanding up front. And uh, yeah, that sounds upfront. They sound like bad words to say in the same sentence as agile. But I've worked on teams where we had stories and they were they seemed pretty small and, and granular and we had estimating meetings and we estimated them and then developers wrote the code. Now these are teams where they didn't really want the testers to participate with the coding. So um, they delivered the stories and either a tester or a product owner said, well, that's not what that should do and rejected the story, which is really annoying and wasteful 
nobody likes it. And so moving those conversations back, I, I, the whole Janet and I called it the power of three in our, in, in our book. And then George Dinwiddie came up with a much better name than three amigos, uh, getting all the amigos together to talk about the stories and do things like example mapping, which was transformative for my last team. Let me tell you, thank you, Matt, uh, um, to really start asking questions and make sure we really do understand it. What are some examples? How should this work? What's desired behavior? What's undesired behavior? What should happen if somebody does something undesirable? Um, and it's just so, it seems so simple, but um, it's just, that changes everything. Because quality, what is quality? People are def coming up with definitions um, about that all the time. But for sure, it is something about the outcome that is for the customer. What are they getting out of it? Do they get value? So if we understand what they want through all these different design activities and research and everything else, and make sure everybody on the team is on the same page about it, we have a much better chance of delivering what they want. And hopefully, like uh, like Sal said, in these tiny increments, you know, people say, oh, Agile's faster. Well, we don't type faster or anything. It's not faster. It's just like Sal said, it's, it, it's, uh, it's that we're breaking it down and doing smaller things more frequently that give people value. And, you know, that's why I'm trying to think of, you know, DevOps in the context of BDD sort of, how do we build that in? I'm not... I'm not sure I can articulate how to do it, but basically by having all the players there and, and having that transfer of skills, I need to know something about configuring pipeline stages and the operations people know, you know, infrastructure is code. They need to know how to code now. And we all have to get outside of our box and do different things and, and work together, but we still need the specialized skills so that we can do that knowledge transfer. And uh, the, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me then is that the push for DevOps and teams being able to uh, deploy their code independently, um, that sort of drives everyone towards this service-oriented or microservices architecture. And and again, is there new kinds of challenges with the testing with between services and things that, that you have to deal with now? I, you know, it's nothing I can speak to from personal experience. I have not worked in that environment, although I have worked in environments where my team was doing part of a system and other people were working on other parts of the system. So I think that's similar, but I think it's just a question of, you know, faking out or mocking out or stubbing out the parts that talk to the other pieces um, and just being smart about how you test that way. So I don't think, I mean, I think... That's been, even in, the, in our monolithic days, we had that issue because huge, like, I worked back in the early aughts for a big telecom as a, con we were a consulting company doing a piece of, a little tiny piece of their website. And, you know, every like seven weeks or so, we had to integrate all these systems together in their test environment. And um, it was pretty fascinating. We were the only ones that were doing extreme programming so we were ready. And at the time, all we could do, you know, from a technology standpoint is we had an open phone call, a conference call that was open all the time and people were testing all over. And if you got a problem, you got on the call and said, hey, this is broken. And then somebody would say, oh, that's our piece. We'll fix it. So, um, you know, we had, we had less slick ways of solving our problems, but we still did them. And I think it still comes down to that. Uh, you start out by making sure your little piece is good because you faked out all the pieces that should talk to it. And then, but then eventually you've got to try it 
and make sure it all really works. So I get to ask you the shift left question because um, I saw your blog post about this uh, a little while back and it was um, a good eye opener for me because I've sort of seen people kind of grumbling about shift left, but you put it into really uh, clear terms for me, which is great. Um, Cause I, I must admit like lots of our customers talk about a desire to shift left and it kind of seems like a healthy thing to want to do in general. Um, and I think that we probably all agree that the aspiration is good, but maybe the, the, your criticism is, is of kind of the, the mental model. It, it, well, why don't I be quiet and get you to explain what is your problem with shift left, Janet? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so I think it's that whole mental model that you just mentioned, because when you think shift left, you automatically think linear. And so to me, what that, if we take it even further, it just means we're going to end up with big upfront requirements again, because that's what shift left kind of says to me. Um, as we talk about DevOps, all of a sudden we've got to be thinking about how do we get involved in that? So where's the shift left part of that? Right, It's shift right. It makes no sense because what we're trying to do is, is an infinity loop um, because that's what we do. We just go round and round and round and round. So to me, the model of shift left is just wrong. It's, it's going to keep us thinking linear versus let's reiterate again and again and again. Yeah, that discovery delivery type exactly. model. With the infinite. Yeah. And then I like Dan Ashby's ad, which, you know, we test here and here and here and here and here, all the way around. I like that addition to that. Um, but yes, it's it really is. That's what we do. We're caught in this infinite loop. It is not linear. So that's my biggest problem with it. And everybody has to be thinking about it. I mean, when, you know, as a tester on a team, as soon as we start talking about a new feature or even a new story, my first question is, well, my first question is, why are we doing it? <laughs> but my second question is, how will we test it? And that just provokes a whole lot of thoughts about, well, gosh, how should we implement it? What, is, what should be the architecture for this? And what should be the design? And thinking at it, of it from a testing point of view, I just think makes people make better decisions and, and you end up with better code, more maintainable and more robust code as a result. Right. You're building testability into the code right from the very beginning. And that's really what we want. Well, that seems like a pretty good note to end us on. Um, uh, is there anything else burning in your, your great and marvelous minds that hasn't yet had a chance to leak out of your mouths and onto the airwaves? Um, the idea of dev test ops. Oh, Yeah. Right. There's there's people talking about that and, and naming it dev test ops. And to me, I, I, I'm not sure whether I like that or not, because to me, testing is part of the dev. Right. It's part of the whole thing. It should be built in. So why would we call it out separately? But there's I've seen quite a few different um, blog posts and different reports and things talking about dev test ops. Yeah, somebody found a tweet back from 2010 with that term in it, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I mean, I like it in terms of I do feel like testing gets lost in this whole DevOps discussion. It, 
it's like with everything new uh, and as humans, we need a label for it. And then we just look at the label and not what was what it was representing and start misinterpreting it. And people equate developer with programmer. It's like, what's the people writing the code and the operations people and they're working together. And who cares about any of the other many people involved in delivering that product? Um, so I like the idea that it gives visibility to testing and testers. But um, but having talked with a lot of people about it now, I'm kind of backing away from it. It's like, okay, it's a dumb label, but so was extreme programming, and a lot of good came out of it. So <laughs> um, it's just it's just a label. But I think what we what my mission is to just keep trying to educate people of the value of testing through this whole continuous loop, and in that it's helpful to have some people with with that specialized expertise to help them learn the skills they need to learn to make that all successful. You know, building that quality culture. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you ever so much, you two, for coming on. You're welcome back anytime you like. Um, we're going to ask you in a minute who else we should have on, and then um, maybe you can come back for those conversations. That would be really nice. So let's just say bye to all the listeners. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Janet. Bye. bye. Thank bye. you. Bye. <laughs>